0: Um, And I also want to make you aware, if you don't, especially if you're visiting with us, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, today in particular is especially helpful to you, I think, if you have one in front of you, because we're going to be covering a lot lot of ground. And I'm going to be making a lot of references to some stories that we're going to be unpacking together, so it might be helpful to you to have those details in front of you. So we've got Bibles provided for you. They're at the the middle of each aisle. Um, If you're not on the end of the aisle, just flag somebody down who's sitting down there, and they'd be happy to pass one to you. And we would love for you to take it, keep it, make it your own. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to have this one. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 11. Uh, it's, in, it's, it's pretty easy to find. It's in the, the last quarter or so of the Bible. If you flip over there, look at the top of the pages, you'll see the, the books named there. Look for the one that's called John and you should be able to find it from there. We're going to be in John chapter 11 covering three stories that follow on the dramatic story that we spent the last two weeks unpacking together. The story of Jesus conquering death for his friend Lazarus. The best stories, I think, are the ones that have ironic twists. If there's, if there's an irony, if there's something unexpected that happens, something that the characters themselves are unaware of that, that, that comes to light later, those stories always keep you on the edge, right? They keep you turning the pages. And John, as a storyteller, this man who wrote this book that introduces Jesus to us across thousands of years, he loved to use irony. We've already seen it several times before. We see it reach its peak, though, in the stories that we're going to look at today. Irony is, I mean, there's lots of ways to define it. You know, there's, I don't have one precise way that I like. But irony is basically the difference between the appearance of things or the expectation for things and the reality of things. Irony happens when, when one thing is expected or one thing is, is perceived, but something else altogether is actually happening, especially in a story. happens when characters think they're doing one thing, but they're actually doing something else. All three of the stories we're going to cover this morning hinge on those kind of moments. All three of these stories are about the glory and exaltation of Jesus as the one who could conquer death. They're all pointing ahead to Jesus as a king who has come to heal his people and to give them freedom. But all three of these stories are also about, about Jesus' death. They're about the, the man who has just shown that he has the power to bring life to someone who had been dead for four days, himself facing, moving on to with this relentless energy, his own death. What these stories as a package deal, what they introduce us to, is one of the most important things that you've got to understand about Jesus if you want to get him. It's it's an irony that's at the center of Jesus' life and identity. And here it is. Jesus is a king who conquers by dying. Jesus is the king who is also the sacrificial lamb. Lots of other ways to say it. He is the one who wins by losing. He is the one who gains great glory for himself by taking on unbelievable shame. The conquering king is also the dying lamb. That's the really simple point that I want to emphasize today through walking through these three stories together. I want to let the stories pretty much stand for themselves. And they prepare us for a lot of other details we're going to get into later on in this book. Today is just about getting the stories out there, about seeing that thread and starting to pull on it together. That this is a king. He does have that kind of power. But he is not coming in the way anyone expects. I want to walk through the three stories that we're going to cover this morning, one by one. And then, and then very quickly at the end, start to imagine together what it would mean to follow a lamb who becomes king through his own death. Now, what I want to do, because we're covering a lot of ground this morning, is read the stories one by one as we come to them. So I'm going to ask you now to please stand with me in honor of God's word, while I read the first of our three stories, this one picks up right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and the word has gotten back to the religious leaders back in Jerusalem in the nation's capital, and and this scene takes us into their sort of cloistered halls where they're trying to decide what they're going to do with this guy. I'm going to begin reading in verse 45, and then for now I'm going to read through verse 57. This is the word of the Lord. who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, "'What do you think?' That he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This first story, as I've mentioned, the, the, the stage for it gets set with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's an act of incredible power and authority. It is an act of one who reigns, even over the enemy that has taken out every human that's ever lived. A whole crowd of people saw what Jesus did just outside the nation's capital. He was in a prominent place and it didn't take long for word to make it back to the powers that be. And no one, get this, no one in this story, have you notice this, is denying that it happened. It's not like they decide to come up with some sort of marketing campaign that will suppress the news and sort of reframe it or spin it as some sort of lie. Everyone acknowledges he did this thing. So what you would expect, I think, what you would expect is that the powers that be, those responsible for Israel's national life, for their religious welfare, you'd expect those people having heard that just outside town this man raised someone from the dead that they would want to promote this guy, right? So if imagine you don't know anything about John. You're reading this story for the first time. It's your first entrance into this book. You would assume that when word gets back to the Pharisees, it was in celebration. Look what just happened. Look what this guy did. And then the, the Pharisees and the chief priests immediately call together their, their special council, probably a group called the Sanhedrin, They call together their council, and you would assume, if this was your first look into John, that the reason they're calling a council is to figure out how to promote this guy, right? What do we have to do to get the word out about him so that we can maybe even gather an army around him? This is a guy who can establish us. That's what you would think. But that's a far cry from what they, they actually gather together to discuss. This isn't the first time we've seen this group in John. This is a group that wants nothing to do with Jesus. And when they gather, they gather to put an end to him. Their opening question, what should we do? What are we to do? Is how my translation puts it. It's really a lot closer to, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? For more than a year at this point, they've been trying to suppress Jesus. They've been trying to either trap him. They've been trying to expose him as some sort of fraud. They've been trying to arrest him most recently. What are we doing here? We're accomplishing nothing. The crowds just keep on going to him. And the signs that he does, they keep getting more and more impressive. We have to notice at this point what the signs of Jesus are doing to this group. If just to remind you what John has said over and over, all through through his book, that belief in Jesus is, is not about more evidence. Think of the weight of evidence that this group has had piling up in front of them. His signs just keep getting more and more impressive. And now he has breathed, he said a word and life is breathed into this corpse. And the effect that it has on them is to drive them further from him, not to draw them in. John has emphasized to us over and over that belief is about what the heart wants as much as it's about what the mind sees and understands. What do their hearts want? Verse 48 points us in that direction. If Jesus goes on doing these things, everyone will come to him. And then what will happen? Verse 48 tells us the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. What do they want that keeps them from seeing Jesus as good news? They want power. Notice the word king doesn't come up here, but that's exactly what they're thinking. If Jesus keeps doing these things, and people keep flocking to him, they're going to make him a king. If they make him a king, The Romans are going to come and try to wipe him out. And either way that goes down, with Jesus as king or the Romans as crushing us and wiping us out, either way, we lose our place. We lose our nation. These folks would rather have a little carved out space with a sort of puppet's power given to them by the Roman Empire than have what Jesus has come to offer them. And so they want to cut him off before he gets there. Caiaphas, the high priest, steps in. And he's, he scolds them initially and then says something that's, that's just cold and calculating, plain old political maneuvering. If we don't want this guy to be king, if we don't want him to rally around him, such a great group of people that Rome takes notice and comes and tries to squash him, then the key is, We've got to get rid of him. He's got to die. The way Caiaphas puts it is, better that he die, this one guy. Better that one guy die than the whole nation get crushed by Rome in retaliation. It's sheer political calculation at this point. There's nothing unexpected about what he says. There's nothing ironic. And Jesus' response to Caiaphas is also pretty expected. If you skip down to verse 54... We're told Jesus gets word somehow and no longer walks openly among the Jews. In fact, he runs out to the country near the wilderness to get away. So, so far, what it looks like is Jesus hears that they're trying to take his life and he does what any sane person would do and gets out of there. But that's not what's going on at all. See, Caiaphas thinks that he's making some sort of wise political maneuver, but John tells us. John gives us, readers, inside information. We're brought into the perspective of the narrator. We can see what's really going on that Caiaphas doesn't see. That when he spoke, he spoke truly, but not in the way that he thought. When he spoke that one must die for the people, even unaware, even unaware to himself, he's using the language of sacrifice. He's using the exact language of Passover that one must die for on behalf of the people. The Jews had been prepared throughout their history, throughout all of their religious practice to see sin as a problem that requires death. There is no solving the sin problem apart from the death of something valuable. Their sacrificial system had made Bulls and goats and birds, these scapegoats, if you will, that, that their sin would be put onto and banished as a symbol of the fact that God must supply something if they're to survive. Caiaphas doesn't realize that when he talks of Jesus dying for the people, he is speaking of the exact plan that God, that God had and, and gave to Jesus as his marching orders when he came to earth that Jesus' whole life was building towards his death for the people, that, in fact, for Jesus to conquer death, for the sign of Lazarus being raised to come to reality, for him to put an end to death once and for all and to give resurrection to all who trusted in him, for the thing with Lazarus to be more than just a curiosity, for it to become the new real, the only path to that place, goes through the death of the Lamb. John the Baptist had already prepared to understand Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if he is going to take away what sin has unleashed, the power of death that holds us all in its grip, he's got to die. It's one or the other. Caiaphas was right. It's It's him or the people, but not in the way that he thought. Caiaphas thinks he's putting an end to Jesus' kingship, What we know, what John is building to, is that he is installing him as king by taking him out. Jesus will conquer by his own death. And he doesn't run to the wilderness to save his own life. He runs to the wilderness to bide his time, to wait for his moment, because his death is his agenda. He goes to the wilderness to wait until the time of Passover, because that's when he will That's when he will come to lay down his life as the lamb. The next chapter opens with a therefore. Therefore, because the Passover is coming, Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem and moves into the fray without fear, with a machine-like resolve to do what he has come to do. He knows they will kill him, and that's why he comes. That's your first story. Second story gives us a similar point that for Jesus to conquer, he's got to die, but in a different way. I want to read verses twelve, or chapter 12, excuse me, verses 1 to 8 for you. Six days before the Passover, John writes, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, In this story and in the next one we're about to get to. Jesus is received as a king. But in these places, just like in the first story, he's got to adjust expectations first. This is just before the Passover. He knows he wants to give his life as the lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb. And so he's moving towards Jerusalem and he comes first through the village of Bethany just outside Jerusalem where he had raised Lazarus from the dead so so shortly before this. And where we see him is sharing a meal with his friends. He's hanging out with Martha and Mary and Lazarus and, and who knows who else. And you can imagine what kind of dinner this would have been. They gave a dinner for him. I'll bet they gave a dinner for him. I mean, can you imagine what it would be to sit there at the dinner table with this guy who was dead? He was in the tomb for four days. And now he's sitting here drinking and eating right along with them like nothing has happened. Can you imagine the tone that a meal like that would have had? It's a meal for a king. What do you do for such a man? Mary, therefore, verse 3 says, therefore, because they have this man who's conquered death sitting there in their home, because their once dead brother is sitting next to him, eating and drinking, therefore, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary, therefore, goes over the top. That's what you do. When a man who's given life to your brother sits down to eat at your table. She anoints him and not with some sort of olive oil. She anoints him with a perfumed ointment that that was likely imported all the way from India. Imagine the ancient world, the distance, the expense of it. It's valued by Judas, whether or not he's right or not we don't know, but it's valued by Judas at basically a working man's annual salary. One projection that I saw put it at something like twenty five or thirty thousand dollars. In today's dollars, you can imagine. What would it look like to just give that away? To just pour it out. Now, either they were filthy rich or this was like a family heirloom. That's what several commentators suggest. This was maybe a family heirloom that had been passed down from, from the generations. Probably their most valuable possession. And she gets rid of it. The word Messiah in the Old Testament, this figure that they were looking for, this deliverer who would come, means anointed one. I think Mary knew what she was doing. She's marking her man. She's saying, he is the one. This is what you do when the king comes to your home for dinner. It's what you do for one who's raised your brother from death. Mary even lets her hair down. In that culture, a scandalous thing for her to do in public. And she uses her own hair to wipe his feet. She's taking on the posture of a servant. She's laying herself out there. She's putting herself at his disposal to serve him in his needs. She's treating him like a king. She's worshiping him. Her heart has rightly recognized what his true value is. Judas, on the other hand, sees the significance of what Mary's doing and reacts against it. His heart puts a different value on Jesus. He doesn't think Jesus is worth it. We should have done something better with this money, we should have given it to them. $25,000! What could we do for the poor with that? How much, could, how, how much could that do to build wells or buy goats or do away with AIDS or, or whatever cause that you want to you fill in the blank in today's terms? What could that accomplish? $25,000, what we're told is that Judas' heart really was attached to that money. He wants it for himself. He's greedy. He loves himself. He doesn't love Jesus. Mary has gotten it right. Her heart has appropriately valued who Jesus is. But even Even Mary, what what really interests me about this story is not just this Mary versus Judas contrast and how they engage with Jesus, but that even Mary's expectations need to be shifted a little bit. When Jesus scolds Judas, when he tells him to leave Mary alone, Jesus puts a different significance on what's just happened than the one Mary surely meant for this to have. Mary almost surely sees herself as anointing her king, her Lord, as worshiping the one who gave her brother life. But Jesus sees what she's done as a preparation for his own burial. She is perfuming a corpse. His death is on his mind. His death is the main point of this worship. He's turned a meal celebrating his power over death into a meal celebrating his funeral. Because Jesus knows what John is now introducing us to, what Mary doesn't yet know, but will come to learn, that dying is precisely how he defeats death. That the conquering king is also at the same time, the dying lamb. Here's the last story. Points us in the same direction. I'm going to read this time from verses 9 to 19 of chapter 12. When the large, large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Yeah, can you imagine? I'd want to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This last story points in the same direction. There's a story about Mary and her anointing. Mary anoints as king, this man who has done this amazing thing, has given life to her brother. Jesus reinterprets it and says... Yes, I am your king, but what you're really doing is preparing for my death. It's this last story points in that same direction. It's one that we know as the triumphal entry. Jesus coming into Jerusalem as its king, being hailed by people waving palm branches and crying out to him in the words of the psalmist, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, king of Israel. Hosanna, give salvation now. The people get it right. That is who he is. That is what he's come to do. But they don't get it right in the the way that they think. Even Jesus' disciples don't get what's going on here. They've heard about what he did for Lazarus. That's what verses 17 and 18 say. The crowd that had been with him when he raised Lazarus was spreading the word. You can imagine. The word would get out. And now these crowds have come because they want to see this man who's done this thing. They've come to one whom they know As a giver of life to dead people. Surely, what they're also thinking is that anyone who can do that is not going to be threatened by Rome and their power. Surely, this is the one we've been waiting for. They come to usher him in as a conquering hero. They bring palm branches that were more at home in another one of their feasts. The Feast of Hanukkah is the one that was that was uh, that, that was always to use palm branches to remember back on a few hundred years before this when Israel had been under another another power, another empire and had thrown them off by a, by revolution they had taken up arms they had rallied their troops, and they had defeated this foreign power who had defiled their temple and palm branches had become one of the symbols of that event of their conquering their conquerors by force of arms that surely is what these people are thinking as they wave palm branches when jesus comes let's do that again let's follow the one who gives life to the dead that's what makes jesus response so unexpected that's what makes it an ironic story because jesus chooses for his ride not a powerful stallion not a mighty war horse Not some sort of chariot. Jesus chooses to come in on a donkey. A ridiculous looking, annoying sounding, smelly, small animal. He comes in peace. He comes as a Passover lamb to be killed. Not a sword bearing revolutionary. Jesus is reframing this event. They don't see it yet, but he's reframing it. It's Passover. They're thinking about Hanukkah. And Jesus wants to bring them back to Passover. For me to come as king, Jesus is subtly saying, I've got to first come as your Passover lamb. For me to set you free, I've first got to die. Jesus grabs a donkey because he knows that Zechariah, hundreds of years earlier, had already written of him. Hundreds of years before, Zechariah had called on his people to rejoice because their king was coming, and he was coming on a donkey. The next verses in Zechariah, what Jesus What's being quoted here is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The next verses in that same prophecy tell us why the donkey matters. Tell us what it is that's being pointed to and symbolized by Jesus coming this way. Instead of on a war horse. Zechariah continues with a promise of peace, not war. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the prophecy reads. And the war horse from Jerusalem doing away with war horses, won't need them anymore. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, this king who's coming to you, he will speak peace to the nations, not war. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set prisoners free from the waterless pit. This king is a king who conquers not by taking up arms, but by laying them down. He comes to die. Because that is how he reigns. The key to him providing freedom to his people. To releasing them from their bondage. The key to everything that the Exodus story and every other one of the feasts that Israel had been celebrating, the key to what they were all pointing towards, what they are all looking forward to, is that Jesus, to set his people free, must die for them. The key is the blood of the covenant that Zechariah wrote of. Because the king can't come in peace until someone has spilled blood You can't be bound to God until blood has bound you to him. That's what Zechariah predicts, and that's what gives each of these stories their meaning. From Caiaphas, to Mary, to the triumphal entry, they're all bringing us in on what we'll see again eight chapters later. This is a king, all right, but he's not the kind of king you've ever expected. Paul gives us one of the best summaries of of this calling on Jesus' life. Philippians chapter 2 is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this hymn to Jesus. Maybe he's even quoting it. Something I used to sing in these ancient churches. Celebrating the central irony at the heart of Christianity. That Jesus was in the form of God. He was with God. He was God. John's already told us that. But he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He became poor. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. The one who was glorified with God himself took on a shame that few in this world have ever experienced. And therefore, because the rich became poor, because the glorious became shameful, therefore... God has highly exalted him and given him a name, a reputation, a fame that is greater than anything else in this world. So that at the name of Jesus, when people hear that, they bow. He's king because he emptied himself. Now, what does it look like to follow a king who who comes in this way? What does it mean to be subjects to one who conquers by giving up his own life? Two things. That Jesus comes as a conquering king who is also a dying lamb. has a huge impact on how we relate to him and on how we relate to each other. A few verses later, ones we're going to come to next week. Jesus says... Whoever loses his life, whoever, excuse me, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Bringing us in, bringing us into the irony that to have everything, you've got to first lose everything. If you want to be with this king, then it's going to mean that you have to admit that you have absolutely nothing. If Jesus had come as some sort of elite power, if he had come with force of arms, kicking out the Romans, what sort of followers do you think he would have come looking for? He'd have been looking for champions, right? For The biggest and the strongest, for the ones with the most training, the ones fiercest in battle. That's who he'd want. If he was establishing his name, not through shame, but through visible honor, what sort of people do you think he'd want in his kingdom? He'd want the ones who were perfect. He would want the top performers. He would want the ones who always accomplish everything they put their minds to. He would want the studs, the popular, and the powerful. That's not how this king came. This is a king who conquers by dying. This is a king who invites the poor and the weak. He's for them. You want to be with Jesus? The first thing you're going to have to do is admit that you have nothing. You're going to have to admit that there is nothing good in you worth holding on to. You've got to lose your life. You've got to die to any independent identity that you're proud of and recognize that without him you have nothing but friends. In him you have everything because this is a lamb who died for you. He's a lamb who was what you were supposed to be. He's the lamb who stands for you, who covers you up, who makes a covenant with you by his own blood and promises you that you will never be alone. If you are with Him, you got to lose your life. He gets the right to run it. He becomes everything about who you are. But when you're with Him, you have everything. It has, every, it has a huge impact on how we relate to God. It also has a huge impact on how we relate to each other. what Jesus is pointing us to, what He's modeling for us in the fact that He comes to die is that the key to glory, the key to satisfaction and joy, the key to having everything in relationship is giving your life away. Giving ourselves away to each other is how we get what we need from each other. We give ourselves away not as the world who... Curry's the favor of those who can give you some sort of boost in life. Maybe I'll give you enough to get what I really need from you. We, we give ourselves away not as a high school senior serves the poor to make their college application look better. We give ourselves away not with expectation of reward or expectation that others will look at us and celebrate us, but simply because we follow the king who conquered all for us by dying. I think our tendency in our relationships with each other is always to be evaluating, right? Am I getting a return that matches my investment, right? Jesus calls on us to do away with that, to not consider what return we're getting, to trust that if we give ourselves away, without even worrying about what we get back, that he will give us everything. And he's not saying, in the verse I read earlier, he's not saying that you shouldn't want to have a full and meaningful life. He's not saying that you don't need each other to be pouring into your life. He's not saying that. He's saying, you want life, I'm going to tell you how to get it. What he's saying is, the ticket to a life, the one that you want, is not the ticket that you think. The key to the life you want is to give yourself away without any expectation. And that when you do that, when you give your life to this sort of deep irony, when you recognize that the best way to enjoy life is to give it all away, not to barter with it, then you'll have what you want. If you're bartering with your life, you're always going to be closely watching what you get back and you're always going to be anxious about the return on your investment. But loving Jesus means pouring ourselves out with the trust that he will fill us up. Can you follow that kind of king? Father, none of us can. None of us will ever take up, none of us will ever believe that you can can give us what we need if we give up our lives. It's too counterintuitive. None of us can believe it unless unless you show us that it's true. And so we need your spirit to help us see to give us the conviction to empty ourselves out because we trust that you are enough. We pray, Father, for faith that is willing to die in order to conquer. eyes to see this lamb and his beauty, and to serve him with freedom and joy. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus, amen.